Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. We hope you enjoy this teaching by Pastor Tom Dick. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. I'm going to be uh, carrying on in the, in the series on Luke, and uh, we're going to be talking today about Luke 7, which is the centurion's faith, and I'm very excited about it. But before I do that, um, uh, my title here is family pastor, and there, I, I oversee a, a number of different ministries. There's one that's very dear to my heart, and that is the foster and adoptive ministry, and uh, we're part of that, my wife and I. We have foster children and an adopted daughter, and... Um, on December 2nd, we're doing an intro to foster care. It's when I get to talk about what it means to be a Christian and a foster parent and adoptive parent. So if you have ever thought about adopting or fostering, even if it's way in the future, it doesn't matter, you're more than welcome to join us. Or if you're grandparents and you want to learn more about what your kids are doing, you're more than welcome to join us too. It's on December 2nd. That's a Saturday from 1.30 till 3 p.m. And we'll have it on the website. But I needed to tell you about that because um, it's exciting for me. All right, so we're going to be talking about <clears throat> this morning the centurion's faith found in Luke 7. Now, just so you understand what we're talking about, I'm going to give, put up a map so that we have a bit of a context of where Jesus is in the, in the book of Luke right now, okay? So he's in this area, that little white area that's circled, um, called Galilee. Pardon me. <clears throat> oh, I did not mute at all. <laughs> um, hopefully this is the one that goes on the website. Gross hacking by Pastor Tom. <clears throat> it's the Sea of Galilee area, Galilee area, and he has been on a speaking tour among the towns and villages there. You can't really say they're cities, they're very small, okay? And he's on his way back um, through a town called Capernaum. Now, he's been here before. He's done many miracles here. He's healed people. He cast out demons in the synagogue there um, out of a person. He healed... Uh, Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. This was, this was actually Peter's hometown. Um, this is where he was called off of the Sea of Galilee to leave his family business and to join Jesus um, as a disciple. So people know Jesus here. And as Jesus comes through town, there's, there's a group of people following him. I can just imagine what it was like, people following him everywhere he went. And the rumors go ahead of him. And so there's, they're expecting him. There's a sense of expectation as he comes towards Capernaum. And that is where we pick up the story in Luke 7. So if you have your Bibles with me, with you, <laughs> I have mine with me, um, then you can read along in verse 1 to 10. It says, when he, Jesus, had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's slave who had been highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting that he come to them and save the life of his slave. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be cured. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith 
even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. What an amazing story. Jesus doing miracles. He's not even in the same room. He's healing people from afar. And he's saying he's amazed at this man's faith. Now, this centurion, I want you to understand something. Centurions were not just regular foot soldiers, okay? A centurion was a commander over what's called a century, uh, 100 soldiers. Cent means 100, century, 100 soldiers. And he wasn't just somebody who got to the position by birthright or anything like that. He would have been one of the young soldiers who rose up through the ranks. He would have had power and authority. He would have been courageous and wise in battle. He would have been one of 60 centurions that made up a Roman legion. And these, these were men that were very, very well seasoned. They were disciplined in battle. And it's interesting to me that this centurion recognized something in Jesus, probably because of how he had been trained. In fact, there were other centurions who noticed things about Jesus too. It was a centurion at the, at the cross of Jesus Christ when Jesus died who said, surely this man was the Son of God. These soldiers, these well-trained, disciplined, courageous men saw something in Jesus that even other people didn't see. That's interesting to me. Because today in our churches, very often we make Jesus into kind of a soft, easy, go, you know, kind of wussy character sometimes. But these were soldiers. They understood the power and the authority that had been given to this man, Jesus. That's remarkable to me. And wouldn't it have been amazing to have been there as Jesus turned to his followers and said, not even in the nation of Israel, of those who know the truth and have been through so many miraculous events and have an incredible history, not anyone in Israel has a faith like this non-Jewish Gentile Roman centurion. Can you imagine? Who wouldn't want that to be said of them? Who wouldn't want Jesus to say, no one has faith in Steinbach or in Canada or in North America like you? It's incredible. Well, what are the qualities that made this centurion's faith so unique and so powerful? That's what we want to look at today. I want to look at three qualities that made the centurion's faith remarkable, something that Jesus marveled at. The first two I'm going to go through quite quickly because I want to park on the third one a little bit. But this is the first quality. He was motivated by love. Now, whenever you are motivated by love, you gain courage. Love always produces courage. I have a story to illustrate that. There's a story that I heard quite often when I was growing up. It happened in the 19, early 1950s. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> pardon me. <clears throat> it was, that's my mom's side of the family. The, the three sisters there, my mom is the youngest. The oldest is Auntie Sylvia. She's 17 years older than my mom. They had five kids over 17 years. And the next one, so my mom is the blondie, the cutie in the front. And the next one with the darker hair, she's also kind of cute. She's my Auntie Edna, okay? <laughs> now, um, they were farmers. And one thing that's very fun about farming, and if you grew up on a farm, you know this, it's burning fields. Am I right? Now, I apologize to all you asthmatics out there, but you really ruined our fun, okay? <laughs> because it used to be, that you could burn, uh, burn fields at night, which was even more fun than burning them in the day because, you know, my farm on, uh, that I grew up on was in Glen Lee, right on Highway 75. You'd light up a whole field at night at dusk. It looked like, you know, St. Adolph is going up in flames or something. It was very fun. We used to play this game, actually. 
We would only burn the straw on the flax fields because the other straw we worked in, but flax straw doesn't work in. So my dad would push it into these great big piles on the field. They'd be maybe four or five feet high and six or seven feet wide. And uh, we would light them. And we played this game. Sometimes the Heinrichs, Heinrichs' sisters, they joined us for this game. And we would, all of us kids, we'd all have our own lighters. It was so exciting. We'd get on top of a pile of, of straw. And then somebody would reach way in, and if you would light, we'd call it a smoke bomb. If you reached way in, you started the fire on the inside, it would smoke, this putrid, dark smoke. It, or it was white, but very dense. And it was very fun. And, you, and the game was, last person off the haystack wins. <clears throat> it was so great. It was so great. And by the way, if you have kids in middle school, they know this story. Okay. Because it's okay, because the government and asthmatics have wrecked our fun anyways. We're not allowed to do this anymore. <clears throat> but back in the day when people didn't take asthma seriously, or pollution, we could do this whenever we wanted, and it was very fun. All right, that's not the point of the story, but it is a good story. They were... Uh, oh, thanks. I got one right there. <laughs> I know I'm not using it, because... It's gross to listen to someone drink. <laughs> I don't know what's grosser, hearing someone hack or drink, but... Thanks, boss. <clears throat> Whoa! Oh, it just went out in the back. I thought I lost my screen for a second. Whew. Everything feels very, like, on edge right now. <laughs> just so you know, if I'm a little skittish. My grandpa was a one-room school teacher. He would be 113 years old this January. He was born in 19... I'm not going to tell you when, because then you'll judge my math. He would be 113 years this year, but he was a one-room school teacher near Altona. His name was Jacob Jacob Entz, J.J. Entz. And uh, besides... Yeah, Jacob Jacob. Okay, laugh. His, middle, his, his, uh, his uh, nickname was Sunshine, so people called him J.J. Sunshine Entz. And uh, he would... Um, He was a one-room school teacher, but he was also a uh, farmer. And so while he was teaching, my Oma would do some of the, the work on the fields and in the farm and stuff like that. And this one year, she was responsible to go and burn the field. And so she went out, and she had a truck similar to that, only it wasn't a Chevy, it was a Ford. I was corrected yesterday by my mother. And um, she had it parked on the edge of the field, and my Auntie Edna, who was about two at the time, was in that truck. And while she was burning, you know, I've, I've burnt many fields. I've only several times ever just about, like, lost my lunch over, over burning fields because the wind would take it or something like that. It's very, very rarely happened where I got nervous that it could get out of control. Well, on this particular day in the early 50s, the fire got out of control and got carried away with the wind. And it started burning towards the truck. And the, the, the problem is that my Auntie Edna, being a toddler, had locked the doors of the truck. So my grandma ran ahead of the fire and was, was hurt. She was burnt while she was trying to unlock the door to the truck. Now the fire just swept underneath. But you can imagine, fire, field, wind, gas tanks, children, the, the fear would have been intense. And this is the point. The, when we love something or someone, we become courageous. There is courage that is drawn out of us. And you know what's interesting to me is that the... It doesn't matter what the object of your love is. Whatever the object of your love is, you become courageous. You become courageous. 
And we see that in the Roman centurion. You know, he loved the nation of Israel enough that he invested his own money into building them what would be what we considered a local church. Okay, They could go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, but in the towns they worshipped at the synagogues. That's where the rabbis taught them the law. He bought, he bought them that. It would be as if a businessman here in town would build this entire building for us out of his pocket because he just wanted the community to be blessed. He loved the nation of Israel. That's a remarkable thing. But you know what else he loved? He loved his slave. And don't be duped into thinking that this was just an investment you know, you know, we think of slaves as the American self, you know, and the Civil War. It wasn't like that. Uh, it wasn't quite like that. Um, it was still barbaric. It was still unkind. But you can imagine that, this, that, this, that these slaves were often actually became, they became part of the, the family. And we can imagine that a centurion who would have loved the nation of Israel so much that he would build the, the town a synagogue would have loved the slave that he had in his own home. <clears throat> this wasn't about protecting his investment. It says that he was a, the, this slave or servant was a highly valued servant. It wasn't a value, though, in terms of monetary value. The Greek word there actually means precious. This slave was precious to his master, the centurion. He loved him enough to send the Jewish elders to Jesus to see if, they would, if Jesus could come and heal his slave. That's a remarkable thing, because it, it would be like as if the queen came to town and we asked her for a personal favor. This was not just anybody, any rabbi, any itinerant speaker coming through town. This was Jesus, and he had already done miracles in this town. The centurion knew exactly what he was asking of this very busy, very powerful man. He could have been humiliated if Jesus had said no. What would that have said about him? But his love for his slave compelled him to see if Jesus would come and heal him. So the first aspect of faith that amazed Jesus is that it was motivated by love. The next one is this. It was marked by humility. You know, certainly not every person in the Bible who Jesus healed demonstrated humility. But when people were humble, they were, it was always noted about them. It was noted about them. In Luke 17, there's another story <clears throat> where Jesus does some healing. He heals 10 lepers. Now, you have to, I don't know if you're familiar with how leprosy looks, but it is an ugly disease. It is, an, it is an unkind disease. It's a disease that destroys your physical appearance. It was scary. It's incurable, I think. I don't know if it's still incurable today, but it was certainly incurable in Jesus' time. And people, and it was very contagious, and so if you were a leper, you were, you were put out, you were marginalized, you were put into a, um, a colony outside, away from people, into the wilderness, where you would be alone and left alone. Lepers had to beg because they couldn't actually, um, they lived off the charity of other people because they could not have jobs and live in, among society. In fact, it was so bad that if you were a leper and you walked, <clears throat> pardon me, if you walked into town... <clears throat> People were required to call out unclean, unclean, to let people know, or you were required to call out unclean about yourself, to let people know that you were a leper. Horrible. Well, ten lepers one day in Luke 17 came to Jesus, and they said, Son of God, would you please heal us? And he said, Yes, I will, but the mode of healing is going to be this. You must go and present yourself to the priest at the temple, and, he will, and that will produce your healing. And so they did. But only one of them came back, and when he came back, he fell at Jesus' feet, and he said, thank you, thank you for healing me. <clears throat> Jesus looked at him and said, but were there not ten that I healed? Then where are the other nine? 
He said, sir, I don't know, but I came back and I'm here to worship you. And Jesus looked at him and he said something remarkable to him. He said, your, he didn't, this is what he didn't say. He didn't say your faith has healed you or cleansed you. That's not what he said. That is true. But what he said was, your faith has saved you. And I'm convinced that this very humble servant, the only one who had the audacity to come back and bow down and throw himself in the dirt at Jesus' feet for the second time, this time healed. He wasn't just cleansed of his sins or cleansed of his disease. He was cleansed of his sins. I'm convinced of it. That's why Jesus here said your faith has saved you. And those other nine, they may have gone on their way and they may have lived a, a healthy life for the rest of their days. But I'm convinced this is the one we're going to see in heaven. Humility is critical to the um, activation of miracles in our lives. It's critical. And this centurion understood that. You know, if you were to think of what the opposite, so if, if humility activates miracles in lives, then it would be pride that stands in the way. We would all agree on that. Well, what is pride exactly? If you think about the devil, the devil, if you were to think of his one, the, the downfall of the devil, if you were to sum it up in one word, it would be arrogance or pride, wouldn't it? Well, there's, a, there's a, a passage in Isaiah. It's a very famous passage. It's written in a poetic language, so there's some imagery there that needs to be understood. But it describes what happened to the devil when he sinned. Shining morning star. Now, this is a title that's given. A star often refers to an angel in, uh, in poet, uh, Hebrew poetry. And shining morning star refers to the devil. The, the word Satan can actually be translated as shimmering one. So shimmering morning star. How you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations. You've been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set, myself, I will set my, up my throne above the stars or the other angels of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly. In the remotest parts of the north, I will ascend to the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And I don't remember quite who said this quote. But I heard once that somebody say, the simplest definition of sin is, my will, not thy will be done. My will, not thy will be done. When we say that we want to be like God, we are being arrogant. Worship is beautiful for bringing humility into our life then. Because what happens is when we worship, however that worship looks, whether it's singing or journaling or however it is, when we worship, what we're doing is we're telling God, you are high above and I am far down below. We are reminding ourselves and telling him the proper order of authority in the world. And you see, the centurion, he understood the proper authority, chain of command and authority in the world. He understood what it meant to be under someone. And so he was coming humbly to Jesus. He was coming asking, not demanding. He wasn't commanding like a soldier. That's true humility. And if we want Jesus one day to brag about our faith, our faith is going to need to be marked by humility. So it was... Love and humility, that were the first two characteristics of the centurion's faith. The third one is this. His faith was manifested through action. And this is so critical. It's so critical. And when I say it was manifested through action, what I mean is it was manifested through action before he ever asked Jesus a favor. Before he asked Jesus anything, 
This centurion was already at work in the local town doing the Lord's work. That's very interesting to me. This is what the elders said. Then they reached Jesus. They pleaded with Jesus earnestly saying, this centurion, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now, think about it. Why did he, pay, why did he build the synagogue? Was it because he knew that one day he was going to have to ask a favor of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? No. He did it because he loved the people. And that love motivated him to action. And so that when Jesus came through town, it caught his attention that this centurion was already doing kingdom work. It's quite incredible. Far too many people are motivated to pray or to worship or pursue a relationship with Christ only when they need it. And don't get me wrong. If you need it right now and you haven't been doing that, you haven't been praying, you haven't been having regular devotions, and it is your urgent need that's mo moving you in that direction, fantastic. But I'll tell you something. If you are motivated by reward for the rest of your life in your relationship with Jesus, you will be let down eventually. Eventually, it can't be about that. It can't be about making some deposit in a faith bank so that you can make withdrawal just when you need it. That's not what this thing is about. We all know those kids who were raised by families that gave them everything they ever wanted. And when you look at their relationships, they are superficial at best. And if your relationship with Christ is only about what you can get out of it, your relationship with Christ is superficial at best. If you're a Christian and you're working and working and working uh, and doing it out of the wrong motivation, you're not doing it for the right reasons. That's bad. That's a sin, actually. You see, and people don't really like talking about this, though, because in James it talks about it. It says, this is describing literally what the centurion was living. He said, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Another way to read this is this. For just as the body without an active living spirit is dead, so also faith without active living works is dead. There should be some demonstration of what God has done in our lives. There should be some demonstration. But people hate this idea, and I'll tell you why they hate it. In fact, yesterday I heard about somebody who hated it so much, they assumed that Southland was a church that preached salvation by works, and so they, didn't, they don't want to come here anymore. Nothing could be farther from the truth. People hate this because they think what we say when we're talking about it is that you can earn your salvation. Wrong. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you can earn your salvation by doing what the Bible calls works. Nowhere does it say that. It's completely false. And I'll show it to you in Scripture. I was recently speaking at Steinbeck Christian High to their, um, to their uh, senior high group in their chapel time. And they have a fabulous theme verse for the year. And this is, uh, this is honestly what got me thinking about even this message. Uh, the Ephesians 2 verse 10, it says this. It's a great verse. It says, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that, so that we would walk in them. Now, when I read that, I suddenly got nervous because it could be misunderstood as saying that the good works that Christ prepared for us to do, that we have to do those good works in order to please God. I thought, uh-oh. There could be a problem here. And then I started thinking, I'm pretty sure that somewhere else in Ephesians, it says exactly the opposite. And it does, like in the two preceding verses. It says the opposite of this. 
It says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are, God, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we would walk in them. You know what he's saying here? He's saying you cannot be saved from works, but you are most certainly saved for a good work. That's what he's saying. You can do nothing to earn the favor of God in such a way that he would give you salvation. There's nothing you can do. You can't impress God enough for him to give you salvation. You might be, you might be this super Christian. You might, you know, serve at three out of four services on the weekend. You get up early to do your 90 minutes of devotions, probably in the prayer room. You give three evenings a week to ministry. You give your 11%. <laughs> You are a good Christian. One day you go to God and you say, hey, God, look at me. Look at all the work I'm doing for you. It's very hard, but that just makes me special, doesn't it? And God will say this to you. My son created the universe. You made crafts with two-year-olds. That's good, but let's be honest here. My son left his home in heaven to become one of his creatures. You don't even get into a cold car since you got the remote starter. My son lived a perfect life. How are you doing with that perfection bit? My son died for sins he didn't have any part in so that a bunch of rebellious ingrates could have access to the garden they got themselves kicked out of. Not impressed. You know, I, I've been on missions trips before. Did you know you can go? I, I went on a missions trip before I was a Christian. Didn't really know I wasn't a Christian. Thought I was a Christian. Told everybody I was a Christian. Didn't really give my heart to Christ yet until I was 20, though. Did you know you can go on a missions trip to Mexico, do kids programming down there in this lovely city named Reynosa? And it is completely works. It's to try and prove that you're a Christian, try and prove that you're good enough. But did you know that if you get saved, and a year later, you do exactly the same missions trip, you go down to Reynosa to a beautiful city, to a beautiful church, the same one you were at last summer, but now you're saved, and you do exactly the same children's programming, but it's out of a heart of gratitude because you know you are an utter wreck without Jesus. Did you know that that makes all the difference in the world? Because now I'm not doing it to earn my salvation, I'm doing it because I was saved. You see the difference? A before and after, right? It's exactly the same work done with a completely different motivation, and that motivation makes all the difference in the world. In the kingdom of God, hear me now, in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as an inactive Christian, a Christian who is not doing works. It doesn't work. In fact, it's a sin. In 1 John, it says this, little children, we must not love with word or speech, but with truth and action with truth and action. It can't be that we only give lip service to works. What should happen is we realize that we are so, we're so utterly lost without Jesus that we can't but work for him. And do you know what you may find? That the very thing you thought would earn you salvation before is the thing that God wants you to do after. It could be the same thing. It could look a lot. The job description might be the same. But it's the heart that changes everything. It's the motivation for what you're doing. And you know what? I get it. Some people are kind of in seasons where they're pulling back. You know, when you have kids, you've got to pull back. Or when you're sick, you have to pull back a little bit. You know, it's kind of like you're in a bit of a Sabbath rest. But did you know that even God did 
work, so to speak, on the Sabbath? He did. You know what he did after he stopped creating the world after six days? It says he rested. But do you know what he did immediately after he created the world? He started sustaining the world. That's what it says in Hebrews 1 verse 3. He used a word to create it. He uses words to sustain it. So even though he was done the work of creation, it's not like he just went home and, and did absolutely nothing. You know, if you go to Israel today, you'll find what they call Sabbath elevators. They're super annoying. You know what a Sabbath elevator is? stops on every floor. You know why? Just on the Sabbath. Because it's work to press a button. Craziness. That's crazy. I'm personally, I'm thankful that today my wife is going to make me a grilled cheese and sandwich and soup for lunch. I'm grateful for that. My dad, I remember him, I remember my dad. My dad faithfully kept the Sabbath, and he taught us to do the same. He said, we will go to church and we will rest. It was super annoying because it meant that there were twice as many eggs on Monday morning if you had to gather eggs. Very annoying. But my dad, and he wasn't religious about it. Religious would imply that he did it because he was trying to impress God. He was faithful about it because he knew that God had built a natural rhythm into our lives that was important. But I remember one time, he was actually bothered by it, and he was talking to me. I was a teenager at the time. He said, Tom, this Sunday... It was harvest time. He said, this Sunday I'm working. I said, what? Like, we never harvested on Sunday, never. He said, but I'm not harvesting my field. He said, you know Mr. Entz? Mr. Entz is not doing well. He's, I think he was sick at the time. He said, he's not going to get his crops off. And so he said, what I did was I called a bunch of my friends, my, my farming friends from church, and he says, on Sunday afternoon, seven of us were going out to harvest Mr. Entz's fields. He said, Tom, I think this is justified in Scripture. I remember him working it out with me. You see, it was an act of rest. It was an act of worship that he would go and help somebody who needed help. So even if you're in a place of rest, there's something you can still do. I, I was joking yesterday about Grandpa McAllister, who was formerly the oldest person in our church, and I don't know who is anymore, and it bothers me, but he was formerly the oldest person in our church until he passed away. And uh, that man, he couldn't get sick enough to stop witnessing. I mean, he gave away a Bible, I think, literally every day of his life, as long as he was, like, healthy to do it. He was one of the Gideons. But even when he was in the hospital, like, on his deathbed, he's witnessing to the nurses, cracking jokes that were completely inappropriate. It was awesome. He was awesome. He didn't rest because he couldn't move. He didn't rest. He never gave up. So now you think, uh-oh, okay, so I am doing works, but how do I know if I'm doing them from a motivation of gratitude or not? How do I know whether it's acceptable to the, to the Lord or not? Well, I've put together a handy flow chart to help you make that decision. <laughs> it looks something like this. I'm going to have to blaze through this. It starts with questions. They're all yes and no, and that's how we're going to decide where we go. Are you a Christian? Yes or no? Okay? We're going to start with the no side. No, I'm not a Christian. Would you like to become one? You should. Yes, I would like to become one. You're a smart person. <laughs> now, let's say I'm not a Christian, and no, I would not like to become one. I'm going to give you just a moment to reconsider. <laughs> because you should be a Christian. Because heaven and hell hangs in the balance, and also your, your fulfillment on earth. So I'll just pause. Moving on. <laughs> no, I'm not a Christian. Do you volunteer somewhere non-Christian? No, I do not. Well, you should. Start contributing to society, okay? 
Do you volunteer somewhere? Yes. Do you know what that's called when a non-Christian volunteers somewhere? That's called works. That's what it is. It's works. Now, let's say you start contributing to society as a non-Christian. Guess what that's called? Also works. Now, let's go back to the yeses. You are a Christian. Are you serving? No. Are you serious? Get in the game. Footnote. There's a tiny little footnote there that says, I'm about to tell you how you can get in the game. No, you're not serving. Okay, but let's say, yes, you are serving. Is it out of a heart of gratitude? No. Works. That's works. If it is out of a heart of gratitude, then you're doing okay. See how simple this is? Very simple. And you know what? I'm not saying that out of a heart of gratitude that you don't get up in the morning and sometimes go, oh, shoot, it's my turn to be in the nursery this Sunday. I'm not saying that because we're all asked to do things that are difficult to do at times, things that are not natural to us, but we do them because of the right thing. But, that is, but we do them if we do them out of a motivation because we know that Jesus did things that weren't easy for him. Yes, take a picture of this. This took me a lot of time to put together. So this should, this should just stay... Uh, in your never-looked-at album on your phone. But <laughs> look, if you are doing, if you are serving anywhere in this church or elsewhere, and you are not doing it out of a heart of gratitude, one of two things. Either your attitude needs to seriously change, or number two, you really need to, you really need to start to understand your position and what Christ did for you. Because if you truly understood what Christ did for you, there would be no ditch too dirty that you wouldn't dig for him. If you understood what Christ did for you. And these are exactly the qualities that gave the centurion the kind of faith that allowed him, that allowed Jesus to do a miracle. You know, um, two, two or three weeks ago, I can't remember, because my, my car battery died. It was in our van. Our van battery died in our garage. And this happens, both our cars take turns dying, and we just use the other one to boost the other one because they both get parked in the garage, right? Well, the problem was the van had died. I was supposed to get the kids to school, and the other car was on the, was on the driveway because I was, I was starting to reorganize the garage. So now I had a dead van in the garage, the good car outside, and I, I had to get this car, this van, out of the garage. Do you know how hard that is to get? I know this is shocking, but I'm not that strong. And I, to get that van moving, it's so hard to get an, a, a parked car moving. You know, the floor was slippery. There was gravel on it. I had to really put my back into it, push it out. It took some time. Now, once I was over the edge of the garage and onto the driveway, then it started moving, and that's when I realized I should have taken the kids out of the car first. But I, but I jumped in real fast and I stopped it. But this is the point. This is the point. If you are not moving in your faith, it can be very hard for God to, to move you where he needs to move you. And if you are already rolling, it's sometimes hard to stop us. This is what active faith is supposed to look like. We do things so that as we're moving, God can mold us and move us where he needs to move us. This is so critical. These are the qualities of faith that astonished Jesus. It was the motivation to love, the mark of humility, and the evidence of the manifestation through action. 
This is the kind of faith that unleashes miracles, except when it doesn't. Do you know, as I was writing this this sermon this week, suddenly I, I got this lump in my throat. Because I said, Jesus, I am doing these things. I really am. And I, I checked my heart. And you know what? There's lots of people who are. And there's lots of people who are waiting for a miracle like I am. And there are some miracles in my life. I mean, lives, literally, children hang in the balance. And I say, Jesus, when are you going to do this miracle? Don't, I'm doing work and I'm not doing, it, I'm not doing it out of a motivation of anything but gratitude. I'm seriously God. But when is the miracle going to come? It reminded me, I, you know, literally every Bible I have, this underlined, since I started underlining verses in the Bible, was Judges 6, verse 13. It's Gideon. Gideon said this to the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord was Jesus. Jesus was visiting Gideon, telling, trying to recruit him into the, the arm or to lead an army against the Midianites. And he's saying, and he's talking about all these things. And then Gideon looks at him and he says, Please, sir. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened then? And where are all the wonders that our fathers, has, fathers have told us about? And I found myself sitting in my office this week getting ready to preach a message on miracles saying, where are all the miracles that used to happen in my life? It's been dry. And I'm sad. I was crying over it. I pulled out some of my old prayer journals just to build up my faith again, to reread some of the things God has done for me historically in the past. It was a very, very good exercise. It actually gave me a lot of joy and a lot of hope. Now, there's all sorts of reasons that God doesn't answer miracles. And this is why we need to talk about it just briefly, just at the end of this message, because this is what Christians do. They say love, humility, plus action equals miracles. It's an equation. Look, it worked for the centurion. Wrong. It worked for the centurion. <laughs> it's not an equation, though. It's not an equation. It's not like you can put this and this and this into a pot and produce a miracle as if God were some sort of sorcerer. Because this is what I want you to understand. It is not your faith that produces a miracle. Ultimately, it's not even your love and not even how you're working for God. Ultimately, it's not that. It's not your faith, not your relationship with Jesus. You know what produces miracles? Jesus Sometimes Jesus, for, miracle, or for reasons unknown to us and baffling and mysterious, just chooses to make us wait. And I tell you something, waiting is very hard. And probably if he had made me wait this long for what I'm asking, begging him for, if he had made me wait this long, you know, 17 years ago when I gave my life to Christ, I wouldn't have had the faith and the, and the trust to sustain me through the waiting. Now he's working on something else in my life. And you might say, isn't that unfair? Well, no, it's not fair. It has nothing to do with fair. And if you catch yourself as a Christian asking, are you being fair, God? You are in dangerous territory. You know why? Because fairness involves justice. And if you truly understood what you deserved, what is just in our case as sinful human beings, you would not want fair. But we're allowed to ask God for grace. Grace is unmerited, undeserved, and very often he'll do it. Very often it will follow in the wake of a life like this. Miracles will follow. I'm, I'm, I'm believing that God will produce miracles in my life again. 
the, not, and not just any miracles, the specific miracles that I'm asking for, I'm still believing that he will work for them into the future. And I will continue to do the right things, not because I expect the miracle, but because I want more of Jesus. Because I tell you something, if I can't get the miracle, I at least want God to be with me in the waiting. Don't you want that? Well, if you want that, then you're going to need to start working. Because God is in that little nursery with the little snot lickers over there. (laughs) Ankle biters and snot lickers. And sometimes if we want to be with Jesus, we need to go to where Jesus is. You know, there's ministries in our church right now that they don't just have a need, they have a desperate need for, ministry, for, for volunteers. It's like, a, a, it's like we do experience this miracle every day at Southland. The miraculous multiplication of positions that we need volunteers for. It's fabulous how that happens, isn't it? Let me tell you about just a couple. There's always positions in kids' land. They always need table leaders. Table leaders. Um, welcome ministry. On Saturday nights, they need ushers and greeters. Now, Saturday night people, they're pretty joyful, but you guys are very joyful. You are the kind of people they want on Saturday night. (laughs) And not only that, they need people to wear the Ravi Raccoon mascot. So if you want to be a greeter, but you're too shy, don the Ravi. (laughs) He's the raccoon that waves to you. We need more people doing that. Pre-service prayer. They meet on Sunday mornings. I always get to go. Uh, Whoever's preaching gets to go to pre-service prayer and get prayed for. It is an unbelievable blessing. They want more people to join in prayer there. Early years, the ankle biters, they need more workers. They're always looking for workers. But you know what ministry needs workers desperately right now? It's one that I love. I love this ministry. We have over 1,300 children here from birth to grade 8 on the weekend. 28 of them have a one-on-one worker. 28. 28 kids who probably have an EA at school who have trouble making it through the day. They have a one-on-one worker, and we give them an EA here in Kidsland or in preschool, wherever they are. We have 28 with a one-on-one worker, but we have 11 on the waiting list. And when when I asked the ministries how many more should be on the waiting list, they said 16 more. So that's 27 kids right now. That's twice as many. We need twice as many workers as we have right now. And it's very hard because those kids are tricky, right? They're tricky kids sometimes. They can, they can be challenging. We train our volunteers, but it's a one-to-one ratio. So you recruit one leader for one child. It's called the in-him ministry. You know what? If you want to get involved anywhere at the church, you just need to email me, and I will get you in touch with the right person. And there's, there, might be a couple, there might be a couple people here who go, but I'm really new to Southland or I'm a new Christian. We don't care. You won't lead a cell group in your first year here, but we could sure use your help in the nurseries. We could sure use your help doing greeting and stuff like that. There basically is no excuse to not serve at this church in your family. And let me tell you something. While it's not an equation, X, Y, Z equals miracle. I know one thing. I don't want to be caught sitting when Jesus tries to do something in my life. I just don't want it. So I would encourage you to find the motivation to get busy for the Lord and for the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you were not lazy with us. You sent your son to die for us and pay it a horrible price. 
And Father, I pray that our worship would help us understand that, that that love that you demonstrated for us, that if we can even, in the smallest, smallest fraction, if we can just give that back to you a little bit, I pray, God, that we would be motivated to do it. I pray, Father, that we would understand our authority, that we are under you, but that our commander-in-chief, he loves us. He's a good, good commander who has our best interests at heart. And God, I do pray. I pray that even though many of us are waiting, that God, you would begin to unleash miracles in our church so that our faith would be built in new and exciting ways, Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.